This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I'm thrilled to bring you an interview today with Jaron Lanier. A Renaissance man for the 21st century, Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist, composer, artist, and author who writes on numerous topics including high technology business, the social impact of technology, the philosophy of consciousness and information, internet politics, and the future of humanism. He is the founder of the field of virtual reality, and after leaving Atari in 1985, he co-founded VPL Research Inc., the first company to sell VR goggles and wired glove. In the late 1990s, Linear worked on applications for Internet 2, and in the 2000s, he was a visiting scholar at Silicon Graphics at various universities. In 2006, he began to work at Microsoft, and from 2009 on forward, he has worked at Microsoft Research as the interdisciplinary scientist in a role called the Octopus, which stands for Office of the Chief Technology Officer Prime Unified Scientist. In 2010, Linear was named to the Time 100 list of most influential people. In 2018, Linear was named one of the 25 most influential people in the past 25 years of tech history by Wired Magazine and one of the top 100 public intellectuals by Foreign Press Magazine. His books include You Are Not a Gadget, a Manifesto, a New York Times, LA Times, Boston Globe, an international bestseller, and Who Owns the Future? foundational critique of internet economics and a proposal for tech reform regulation. His book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, is another international bestseller, synthesizing what we know about the new technology of tricking people with algorithms. His writing appears in the New York Times, Discover, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Harper's Magazine, Atlantic, Wired Magazine, where he was a founding contributing editor, and Scientific American. He has appeared on TV shows such as The View, PBS NewsHour, The Colbert Report, Nightline, and Charlie Rose, and has been profiled on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times multiple times. He regularly serves as a creative consultant for movies including Minority Report and The Circle. He has received honorary doctorates from the New Jersey Institute of Technology and Franklin and Marshall College. He is the recipient of CMU's Watson Award in 2001 and a finalist for the First Edge of Computation Award in 2005. He received a Lifetime Career Award from the IEEE in 2009 for his contributions to virtual reality. Jared Lanier is also a musician and an artist. He has been active in the world of new classical music since the late 1970s and writes chamber and orchestral works. He is a pianist and a specialist in unusual and historical musical instruments, and he maintains one of the largest and most varied collections of actively played instruments in the world. 
Hi, Jaren. Hey. So, Jaren, I first met you a while back at a conference held by a group called the Unintended Consequences of Technology, or UCOD, um, where I asked you a question specifically about the role of imaginative material, such as literature, broadly and more specifically, the role of science fiction in tech development, and thinking about the ethics of tech. And your response was really pivotal for me. And in thinking about the creation of the class that I now teach on science fiction and the ethics of technology, we were actually reading the specific piece of fiction you mentioned, which was EM Forcers, The Machine Stops. Mm. So I know you've thought a lot about this. And in fact, you played a role in consulting on films that play out the outcomes and the consequences of perhaps well-intentioned technological products gone awry, such as Minority Report. Could you talk a little bit about how you understand the relationship between the imaginative work of fiction and the, I'm going to use a tech term here, imagineering of tech? Uh, that's quite a question. There's a couple of different angles on it. One thing I've often felt was that there was too much attention paid to the idea that science fiction foresees technology. And in fact, in many cases, technology is a little bit ahead of science fiction and inspires science fiction. And science fiction is more often about its own present than, than really the future. Like for instance, virtual reality was pretty far along before there was cyberpunk literature. Although things like virtual reality had been described in fiction, it's like just a little bit of a pet peeve of mine that I felt like we were actually doing things a little bit in advance. Mm -hmm. Like we already had working VR systems before there was Neuromancer. And in fact, at the time I used to keep up with Bill Gibson in those days. Not so much lately, although I, I kind of regret that. He's great. But he once came by and said, you know, if I were a different generation and things were a little different. Actually, no, he didn't come by. At that time, he wasn't allowed in the U.S. yet. He just was on a call. He was he was restricted from the U.S. for a while because he avoided serving in Vietnam uh, out of ethical objections. But at any rate, in his very thick, at that time, extremely thick uh, Southern accent, he'd said, you know, boy, I could almost see just doing this instead of writing. And I was like, no, 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 you'd write. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that yeah. you should write but I also used to have this weird relationship with him. I've written about this a few times where I'd call him and bug him and say, you know, your stuff's so dark and negative and we've already had enough dark writers. We've had William Burroughs and Phil K. Dick. Like, why don't you come up with some positive vision? And he'd be like, I don't know, Jaron, I'm trying, but this, you know. <laughs> I will say it's very hard to present constructive science fiction. And I'm not entirely sure why. I had the privilege of being slightly connected with the best example I know, which is the 90s Star Trek TV series, like uh, Next Generation in particular, which somehow pulled off the trick of presenting this sense that technology could get better in tandem with people kind of figuring it out and society getting a little better and dignified characters and the sense of an ever-expanding vista of, of self and societal betterment. And it's awfully hard to pull off. And I think these days it's inconceivable to even fund anything that isn't super dark. And that that's been a problem like in my little minor career helping these different productions figure out their ideas it's essentially impossible to find anybody trying to do anything that's not just as creepy and dark as possible i'm hoping that after these horrible years of the pandemic and trump and all this stuff that maybe people have decided we've had enough darkness and maybe there'll be a renewed taste for a, a kind of a sense the very very hard work of trying to be constructive and positive which is which is certainly not easy at all 
Yeah, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about this kind of dystopian turn in science fiction. Mm. There's this stream of science fiction work concerned with the possibility that the virtual and the augmented forms of reality will cause us to stop knowing the difference between virtual reality and reality, or that we might actually prefer the virtual to the real. I'm thinking here of The Matrix, of course, Ready Player One, or reaching back to 1935 with Stanley Weinbaum's Pygmalion Spectacles, a favorite of mine. Most of these works of imagination involve this kind of utopian ideal that spins out into dystopia where the virtual world threatens to overtake Mm -hmm. the real. The prototypical version of that would have been The Machine Stops, I would Mm -hmm. think. Or if you want to stretch it, maybe Frankenstein. So look, uh, I I mean, I've always had a line about this going back Mm -hmm. to my my 20s and 80s, which is that the mistake in that idea is that humans are fixed points. In fact, we're always learning to perceive by what we do. And so as we build virtual reality, we we actually improve our own ability to perceive the difference through the experience Mm -hmm. of it. And as I always used to point out, in the 19th century, there were there were experiments where people couldn't distinguish between horrible early wax recordings and real singers behind screens. Mm-hmm. Or in photograph, just a photograph of somebody who looked kind of like somebody was treated as realism, even though it wasn't of the right person. And people actually yeah. sold <laughs> photographs. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like there's this way that our sophistication increases with media experience. So what I would hope will happen is that people's sensitivity and acuity will increase the more experience we have. And um, mm-hmm. another little ritual we used to have along these lines is when people who were getting VR demos in the early days would come out, you know, there's that magic moment when you perceive reality again, and ideally you should perceive reality better. Like the very best moment yeah. in at least traditional occlusive, occlusive virtuality should be the moment you come out of it. And so like you'd sneak a flower or a mineral or something in front of them. And then when they look at this thing, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. just other people become sort of hyper real when you come out. So I hope that that will continue. I don't think there's any particular reason why that can't be some sort of infinite yeah. game that just goes on and on. But you know, the thing about it though, is that this question of whether people would prefer a virtual world to the real one is a little different than whether they could distinguish it. That's mm-hmm. actually a slightly different question. And the question of whether they prefer it is not based strictly on, on on the sort of cognitive science argument I was talking about, but more on a cultural and political argument yeah. and, and sort of to some degree, to what degree people can be snookered, you know? And I think that the problem is that if you look at what's happened with non-virtuality social media, like the different Facebook brands, like Instagram mm. and Facebook and so on, and, and YouTube and all the rest. There is a way that people have started to see memes and conspiracy theories and popularity contests and disses and all this sort of nonsense as being more real than reality. And that's not exactly an example of technology getting so good that it fools people, but rather people getting good at fooling other people. Yeah. And and that's, I think, the much greater danger. I mean, this concern and this dystopian tendency to think about this is not new. The people who first encountered the novel thought of the novel itself as potentially endangering the boundary between the reality of the novel and and the reality of the real world. And I've always been curious, so maybe I thought to ask you, do you see a relationship between the kind of imaginative work that readers do in immersing themselves in a piece of fiction or a book, which has these black scribbles on white pages, which we animate in our minds without any sensory input or content material form whatsoever, where we can smell and taste and touch and feel through this code written on these white pages. Do you see any of the metaphor of virtual reality in the form of the piece of 
fictions that we read all the time? There's a theme from the very earliest writing we have about the dangers of, of writing becoming sort of too real, too important. Yeah, it's in yeah. Plato, of course, there's the famous passage right. about, you know, how people will lose their memories and become idiots because of writing. And there's some wonderful phrases about the dangers of writing in, from a millennia ago, the, the Sufi poet Rumi. And there's, there's just so many, there's so many uh, examples like that. And I think the reason that writing isn't as bad as it might be as literature. There are a set of societal institutions and cultural mm -hmm. traditions that give it a context that's better than it might be. And mm -hmm. it's it's all about societal institutions. Surely equally true for any other media that people come up with, uh, and certainly true for virtual reality. Of course, right now, we're in the place with virtual reality that we were in with writing, I don't know, you know, 10,000 years ago or whatever. And, you know, for the moment, we're kind of in a crappy place with it because yeah. the one headset that's kind of the most viable for somebody to get their feet wet with virtual reality requires a Facebook account, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't be willing to have. I don't think it's ethical to have a Facebook account personally, unless you absolutely couldn't survive without it. And there are a few people who are in that category, especially in some parts of the world. But probably if you can afford an Oculus headset, you can't ethically use an Oculus headset. And so yeah. therefore, we're not in a great time for virtual reality at the moment. And but you know, time is long, and this moment will pass and all kinds of other developments will occur. So I'm, I'm still optimistic it'll turn around. I have a question about Facebook and Oculus later, but maybe we should mm -hmm. back up first and define our terms. And who better to ask to define the term than the person who defined the term? What is virtual reality? What did you imagine its potential to become when you first conceived of it? When I wrote a book about it, I just I included dozens of different definitions because it's really hard to nail. That book was done and I knew everything. And it's really hard to nail it down. Originally, what had happened is Ivan Sutherland who made the first head tracking uh, headset display had talked about the virtual world, which mm -hmm. is the thing you saw through it. And the term virtual world, I believe, goes back to the art critic Susan Langer from mm -hmm. decades mm -hmm. earlier. Although I'm not sure. And actually, a few people trying to write all this up have said, hey, do you know if Ivan really knew about Suzanne Langer? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you can ask him if you want. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, history doesn't, cultural yeah. histories always create these like neat little webs that this thing went to that thing into that thing. And of course, in reality, the people who are living it have no idea if that's true. So I, I'm not exactly sure where I even got it from. But at any rate, in the science world, there were things like virtual particles already. And what bothered me about virtual world is it's all about that stuff out there. And I wanted to be more about connection. And it seemed to me reality was a better word because at the time I was thinking about it, I was a teenager, I guess, in the 70s. And there was all this hippie talk about consensus reality. And, and a lot of it was very silly talk because the whole idea was to challenge the notion that there is reality, that the only reason there's like a wall here is we all believe there's a wall. And if we all believe there wasn't a wall, the wall would disappear, as would war and famine and all injustice. You know, and of course, that's all <laughs> nonsense. But the truth is, it's not all about us. It's not like that ego trip approach to betterment isn't, doesn't work. You know, it's harder than that. So virtual reality was kind of a fusion of this hippie idea of consensus reality with virtual world. And the idea is that it's, it would be the shared thing. And mm. as far as what it could mean, I mean, I had whatever utopian rap you might read about virtual reality from the last 10 years, I, I promise I had a more flowery version of it in the 80s. I had this weird thing where I got into almost like a guru-like state with people for a while. And I could give these long talks about what virtual reality could mean. And 
covered all kinds of bases and I could, I mean, I could reproduce that talk sometime, I think still, or at least most of it. But part of it was about this idea, post-symbolic communication was part of it, that when babies are born, they realize in the terrible twos that they don't actually control reality. There's the difference between this little weak pink wet thing and everything they can't do. And uh, people have strong neoteny, meaning that as children, we're incapable for an unusually long time, like a little baby horse is born ready to walk around. We're not, you know, we're helpless. And so that tension between being, being smart little human babies, but being helpless creates this incredible anger that I think we hold with us throughout our lives. I think it's part of why human character is so troublesome. And the, the notion was that um, what, what you start to do, you start to realize that there's this thing called the symbol, symbolism that people invented to get over this gap between what we're like as little kids and, and uh, what we wish we were. And with the symbol, you can refer to all the things you can't actually do. Mm. And I used to, my common examples were giant weird creatures in the sky, like, you know, diamond encrusted tarantulas in the sky or something. It was like, I don't know why I was settled on those. It's like, you can, I can say that sentence in there, but I can't, to actually make one would require a century of genetic engineering and blah, blah, blah. It's like not really accessible, but in virtuality, I could also make one. And so in virtuality, you could, instead of just describing the thing, you could actually make things for people to experience, which is really different. And you can argue about in what way it's different, but I don't think you can really argue that it's not different at all. Uh, so the idea is that virt virtuality would be the waking state, lucid, shared, skill-driven dream. It's a particular kind of shared experience that you build as a craft. You'd have to have some way of improvising it in the way you mm -hmm. improvise music. It would be shared with people objectively in the same way the physical world is. It wouldn't rely as much on a shared language, although one would develop probably. It would have dreamlike qualities in that it wouldn't have normal constraints. Um, it would only have the constraints of the software system. Anyway, so that was that was one aspect of it. It was also supposed to be this empathy machine that would help people appreciate each other's mm -hmm. struggles. It was also supposed to be the most ambitious idea for it was that it would provide enough of an aesthetic platform to explore to distract people from destruction as a way to feel like they're meaningful yeah. and that was a that's been sort of an idea I've always believed is true that creativity is the only way that people can find meaning other than destroying each other and so yeah. creativity is a necessity for survival once you have a lot of technologies there you are that's the summary <laughs> I love the way you articulated that and and I think one of the fascinating things you mentioned in that definition is that it belonged to a, a certain context and a certain cultural web one of those which was certainly the beginnings of Silicon Valley in its moment of becoming not just Silicon Valley, but capital S, capital B, Silicon Valley. Could you perhaps share a little bit about Silicon Valley in that moment? What was happening around you when you were considering these ideas? When I first showed up in the Valley, it was a pretty different place. It was already called Silicon Valley. And some of the institutions we're familiar with were already well-established, like there were already venture capital firms and startups and all of that. In a funny way, if you look at the, the HBO show Silicon Valley, it's more nostalgic than it lets on. And it's a little bit more what it was like in the 80s, some little house in Palo Alto than what it became later. But it was kind of like that. It would be like a bunch of hippies in, you know, sharing a house, trying to figure something out and running around to these venture capitalists. And at that time, physically, it was very different. There were still some orchards. My little startup that did virtual reality the first time was in a bunch of huts along a creek in Palo Alto that had never been developed. It used to be alongside orchards. Yeah. And now it's just this, it's just lost. I mean, you couldn't, yeah. it'd be hard to even find it. I've tried to find it on satellite maps and it's just covered in these condo developments. And so it, it was, it, it definitely was. It had a different feeling. It had a bit of a feeling still of its history. Like you could detect the parts that had been around from the colonial era. 
and even a little tiny bit of Native American stuff if you were to look in the hills. Mm -hmm. But mostly you could you could connect it with the, the railroad era. You could tell mm -hmm. where the railroads had come through in the early, the farms and the sort of crummy construction at that time. And then the World War II stuff that yeah, came yeah, in. Yeah. And so it, it, it felt more connected to the rest of the world. Now it doesn't. I have to say at this point, when you enter, especially into the mental space of Silicon Valley, it, reals, it yeah. really is a place that's separated from the rest of the world. Yeah. It's a place that's kind of lost in, in self-aggrandizing ideas all too often. That's yeah. a bit unfair. That's like, I shouldn't paint everybody with that brush, but there's an awful lot of that. One thing that was better about it is that because it was less structured, it, was, it wasn't it was so much about who you know. These days, you come in, and if you know the right people, you get into the right incubator, and then you know yeah. the right people for venture, venture stuff, and then you... Yeah. A lot of people who come in aren't really, I want to try to say this just right, but a lot of the successful startups don't really bring much technical brilliance to the table. It's more just that they have an in. It's a little bit more like Wall Street. And yeah. that's not universally true. Of course, there are some that do have tremendous technology insights and, and are really contributing on that level. But it, it's um, it's definitely more of an inside <laughs> thing now. There's more of a more of a feeling that you have to know the right people coming in. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I also have to say there's a diversity issue, which is different than the one people in the old Silicon Valley, there was definitely underrepresentation of a lot of groups and to our discredit, but there was a wider range of cognitive styles among those who were there. Mm -hmm. In the newer site in the newer Silicon Valley, I feel like there's a sort of a performative diversity that's often actually not that substantial if you look mm -hmm. closely. But there's a rigid reduction in cognitive styles of the people who are participating. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got a little toe on the spectrum and they're kind of yeah. really into these kind of ultra-reductionist, utopian, fake ways of thinking. I mean, it's interesting. There's so much I could pick up on there, but there was a really interesting moment in the history of Silicon Valley where I think tech became so lucrative that a lot of people who would have previously in a, in a different era gone to Wall Street came to Silicon Valley mm -hmm. instead. And I think that, that represented a real cultural shift, like a pivot toward the particular financial outcomes of tech, a pivot that you've been very critical of, particularly in looking at the monetization of uh, digital mm -hmm. culture. I'm not exactly sure when to say that happened, but it definitely mm -hmm. happened. Was there anything in the early days that led you to become concerned about the dangers of technology and the critic that you have frequently become or was it later? I started writing my critical essays, which are remarkably similar to what I'd write now around 92. So like in 92, I wrote an essay about how the way we're thinking about things, there could eventually be bots that sweep societies and throw elections, yeah, for instance, yeah. which is, you know, and the thing about that is lots of people have written prescient stuff and it, the question is whether it does any good. And I, my regret is that I think if I, as I think back, there were many instances when I was close enough to things happening that maybe if I'd screamed my head off more mm -hmm. or explained more clearly, maybe I could have done more to prevent what I view as just the deleterious outcomes that are threatening our survival, mm -hmm. you know, and I've gone back over that. And at the time, it felt like I was doing as much as I could. And it's, it's very hard to say, it's very mm -hmm. hard to go back and evaluate that. Did you feel like you had a cohort? You were talking about other people who were also presciently writing about this. Did you encounter other people who were concerned as well? If not, what led you to become concerned or see things that perhaps the more utopian thinkers did not? I mean, I'd been critical of it 
from early on in my arguments with my mentor Marvin Minsky, mm -hmm. uh, with whom I, I had, who I adored, you know, and treasure, but still had very strong disagreements with. I'd been kind of a contrarian and viewed as a bit of an apostate for a long time. But I would say by the time I decided to start publicly writing things, which would have been in the early 90s, I believe, well, 92, I know for sure, maybe there was some stuff that was earlier. Um, there were only a, a very small number of other people doing that. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of people skeptical of AI who were writing about it from that angle, which is really the same issue, just from a different angle. And, th and that included people like Terry Winograd from Stanford. And then there were people coming at it from the potential for abuse. And that included, so now I, I wasn't prepared for this. So I, sometimes I have trouble recalling names, but the fellow who wrote uh, Silicon Snake Oil. And then there were, uh, and there were a few others. I mean, I, I think at that time, the people actively writing skeptical stuff numbered four or five in total, something mm -hmm. like that. There just weren't a lot. I'm sure there were other people who were thinking it, but it was, it was really a very distant, it was very distant from the mainstream anywhere. And part of it, there's a, there's a thing that's hard to construct now, to reconstruct now, but yeah. there was a feeling at that time that a lot of societal elements had failed us. People distrusted the government. There had been a series of scandals that had just gone on forever and people were just, some of the information about how, just how bad our adventures in Southeast Asia had been during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War era were just coming out all those years later. And it, it started to become clear that really there were millions of people who died for no reason at our hand. And it was just very, it's very hard to accept. And, and I think uh, most Americans probably still don't even know about it because it's it's hard to take in. And uh, there was a bunch of others. And then there were various reasons that we weren't th that happy with universities and we weren't that happy with the media and we weren't that happy with the press and we weren't that happy with, you know, things. but this one thing and, and capitalism seemed like it was experiencing market failures all over the place and communism had turned into this horror and every, you know, every honest person saw that there was just like, no. And uh, if you believed in like sort of spiritual movements there were a bunch of gurus who were abusing their uh, disciples and that whole thing had just totally fallen apart. And if you believe that drugs would save everything, which some people had had, that was falling apart like but the one thing this tech tech was the one thing everybody could believe in whether you you were from uh what we now call red states or blue states or anything like tech is this future it's this optimism it's this thing and so to criticize it felt like taking away a child's last toy or something you know it just felt it felt so cruel to even do it and so yeah. those of us who did did it in a gingerly way and I like I said I kind of regret that now I, I think but at any rate that yeah that's how it was and then um, further on into the 90s some more people started to appear and then of course lately there's a whole industry of tech critics I mean it's really I almost I mean it's like for some of the stuff I used to say there's like 500 people lined up and many of them are, are excellent you know yeah. really really excellent. I wanted to pick up on one particular area of your yeah. critique. You've talked a lot about in your TED Talk and many other spaces. You've called social networks, particular Facebook, I think, uh, behavior modification empires. What makes social networks behavior modification empires? Mm. A social network by itself is not necessarily a bad thing or, or manipulative. It's the algorithms. So it's yeah. the business model. The issue is if you have if you finance two people connecting by letting a third person pour money into the system to manipulate those people, yeah. eventually the whole civilization becomes about who can manipulate who and everybody goes crazy. And in particular, when you're subjected 
to behavior modification regimes, you gradually become more paranoid, more irritable, more xenophobic. So, you know, the, the thing is, this has been really known for a long time, but it was forgotten. The very, 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 very first actual implementation of a network experience where somebody sat in front of a computer that was connected to another computer at a distance and had some kind of social experience with multiple people was by, do you know the answer? I don't. B.F. Skinner. So in the early 60s, there was a network called Plato Naturally. It fits. Uh, but it was, this, it was this network of uh, Midwestern universities with experimental connected computers. And it was, it was before the ARPANET and certainly well before the internet or the web or, or social media as we know it. And the thing is, his idea was that if you implemented behavior modification algorithms over a network, you could create a perfect society and get everybody mm -hmm. to behave properly. And as is always the case, you know, it's like in the, in, in, um, the machine stops in a way, uh, or the Matrix movies, or you know, yeah. fill in the blank. Most dystopian science fiction follows along those lines. The whole work of yeah. uh, Philip K. Dick, and of course, it doesn't work. What happens is instead you get a horrific result. But um, he took the techniques he developed with pigeons and rats, where they would press a button. They'd be trained to press a button in order to create a behavior loop that was around the device yeah. instead of their other environment. Um, that evolved into the like button on Facebook, of course, and. Um, as we took these techniques that were used on animals and applied them to people. And, and that was, once again, before anything else. Now, the first proposal for an architecture that could be implemented was Ted Nelson, 1960. And that, that one was deeply humanistic yeah. and, and well-intentioned. But the first one actually implemented was the B.F. Skinner one. One of the problems with Silicon Valley is that it has no history and it's very easily manipulated. Like, if you show up in Silicon Valley and you say, you people are the most brilliant in the world, and here's the very simple nerdy formula by which your brilliance will transform reality and make everything better and you alone can do it. Yeah. They will accept it, whatever it is. You could yeah. you could tell them that the right thing is for them to stuff mud up their butts and they'll do that if they think, <laughs> if you present it in that way. I shouldn't have said that probably, but anyway, it's true. And, and, and so the problem is that... Uh, a bunch of really nerdy ideas about reality that are incredibly flattering to people in computers, like the meme idea that it's really mm -hmm. just about what the algorithm decides, that's reality. Uh, network effects are reality. And, and other ideas like that just totally took over thinking and then, and, and it's impenetrable. Like when you have a true believer in the Silicon Valley mythos, you know, you cannot talk to them. They're, they're not open to actually listening to you. They're, they're happy to analyze you as your superior, but you cannot actually have a conversation. I've been in a unique position in that I can't be dismissed in that way. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes in as a journalist or social critic or an economist or whatever, they'll say, ah, you don't know anything. They can't do that to me because I like invented the stuff they're making their living on. So mm -hmm. in some cases, so I, I have a little bit more of an end, but not that much more, really. It's hard. The credibility, I think, is incredibly important in that critique. I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned, which is the architecture of that kind of algorithm that allows for that behavior modification, mm -hmm. particularly you're thinking on cybernetics as a way to understand the role of computers in behavior modification. Mm -hmm. And just to quickly define the term here for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, cybernetics is, the, is a field founded by the thinker Norbert Wiener, and it studies and explains the relationship between human behavior and computers and the feedback 
feedback loops that happen when our behavior fuels computer activity, which in turn changes our behavior in what becomes a series of endless and constantly responsive feedback loops. Why is a cybernetic function of computer technology so critical and perhaps so dangerous? Well, this is a this will take a long time to answer properly, but I'll, I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. The term cybernetics is not in um, operational use in most of the circles where I where I see things really you know being done that influence the world today. I think it should be um, historically. It, it started off as a sort of a nerdy distinction. If we go back to Turing and von Neumann, there's, the, there's an abstraction for a computer, uh, which we call the Turing machine now, and it has distinct operation times. There's a beginning where you prepare it, then it runs, and then in the event it comes to a, a conclusion, which we call halting, then there's a, another period where you could read the answer. So prepare, run, read, answer. And yeah. when Wiener was looking at that, he was saying, you know, there's another way to think about computation, which is that it's continuously connected with the world and it doesn't have these discrete start and stop points. And that's, um, it doesn't teach you new math, but it does possibly teach you new engineering to think that way. And so he was saying like, for instance, if you just think about any feedback system like a thermometer, you could think of a thermometer as being in constant connection. And if you had a network of thermometers, it would start to look like a neural network that was constantly yeah. connected. Yeah. And it's just a different way to think about computation. And so yeah. cyber comes from navigation in the Greek. So the idea is that this thing is constantly navigating based mm -hmm. on feedback, you know, from in the case of navigating a boat from the winds and waves and, and, in the, and in a computer from whatever the sensors can read. So the original distinction wasn't even about people. It was just a different way to think about computation. But then <laughs> Wiener was looking and said, wait a second, if you attach one of these things to a person, you could have it learn how to control the person. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote a book called The Human Use of Human Beings that had a thought experiment that is possibly even more chilling than E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. And he says, you know, just as a thought experiment, if you had radio connected devices that were just moved, that people had with them that somehow measured something about the person, gave them some stimulus, you might end up with a situation where algorithms start controlling everybody. And this could be an extinction, an extinction level event for humanity. That's not his language, that's modern language. But the point is that this is something, and then he ends it with the comforting notion saying, but you know what, this isn't feasible. There's no way you could ever do that. And of course, we, we've done exactly that. And so the, cyber, the cybernetic approach to computers is both probably a better model for thinking about what they do and how we engineer them today than the original Turing formulation for many purposes. The Turing formulation is fantastic for a lot of things. If you want to understand different classes of algorithms and things, it's really good. The cybernetic one is probably a bit more operative for uh, computers as we have them today, where they're, they're in continuous use. And uh, this notion of the dangers of attaching a, per a person to something like that is really, really important. Mm -hmm. you know, the problem's always been, well, what do you do about that? Is there any way you can have connected computers without them turning into manipulation? machines. And that's where I felt the answer had to be found in part in economics. That's how I got into this whole thing about how you have to be paid for your data, because the yeah, only other yeah. option is for your data to be used to exploit you. There's just no other logical possibility. Yeah. And so that's how I got into that whole, the date, what we call the data dignity way of thinking at this point. I didn't want to get into economics because it's always, it's not that thrilling compared to a lot of other things, honestly, but, but there's just, it, it is the right place to go if you want to solve this problem.
I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that the next couple of questions have to do specifically with the economic linchpin, which does seem to be an important element to understand if we want to mm -hmm. understand and think about the, the critique that you have here. I love the term that you've coined for the business model based on social media's manipulation of individual behavior when these platforms mm -hmm. know what you're seeing and then they have the ability to decide what you will see next in order to further determine how you will behave in a never-ending feedback loop that gets progressively tighter until it becomes a binding force on an individual's free will. Um, you call it bummer, which yeah. stands for behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for rent. Does social media <laughs> have to be a bummer? Yeah, I should say, by the way, I don't think bummers really caught on that much. I see it every once in a while, but it's not a giant thing. The term that caught on much more is um, Shoshana Zuboff's um, surveillance capitalism. And I kind of wanted something, I don't know which term is older, but the reason I came up with bummer is I wanted something that was neither left nor right. Because mm -hmm. Shoshana's thing kind of sounds like your leftist critique of, of capitalism. And I think the question of the role of capitalism can be separated from this mm -hmm. particular thing. So that's, anyway, this whole thing about terminology, I've had more than my share of terms catch on, you know, virtual and mixed reality and whatnot. So I never really came up with a good one for this that would catch on. At any rate, uh, there's definitely an alternative to it, which, which is, um, and this is a whole long thing to describe, but the very brief version of it is um, right now the idea is that your data is taken from you. You don't even you don't even have a way to know how valuable it might be or what it is or why the particular data is taken. The data is treated as worthless when it's yours, but as soon as it's aggregated somewhere else, then the greatest fortunes in history are invested in it because that's really Facebook's asset. You know, what else does Facebook have but your data? So you have these crazy fortunes built on your stuff and yet it's not supposed to be worth anything. Now, there's a couple of things to say about this that have to be said very clearly. One is that in order to pay people for data and not have a turn into yet a different hellscape, uh, people have to have inseparable rights to their data. They have to have mm -hmm. moral rights. So you can't just get somebody who's poor to sell their data forever. And two is they have to have collective bargaining. So they have real clout at the table so that they can negotiate for a fair, you know, fair payment. Otherwise, once again, the, the, the rights will go down to zero. So you need, you need at least those two things before we even talk about this. I wanna talk about a few reasons why it's important. One reason has to do with this sense of imminent human obsolescence that so many people profess. And I think this is kind of a big deal. Like I've been tracking uh, right-wing media. And <laughs> if you look at right-wing media, there's an interesting thing, phenomenon where after all the stories about how horrible, uh, I don't know, some woman on the left in politics is, wh whoever it is that, that day, after that, and after a few other things like that and whatever, at the end of it, there'll be something about a robot that's gonna take your job. And it's usually a press release that was intended as a brag from someplace like Google or IBM. But then in this context, it's like, look, they're coming for you. And I note that if you look at the rhetoric of the worst instigators of violence, whether from the American right or from the uh, violent insurgents in the world of Islam or from whatever, a few other examples, um, they always talk about this idea that they're gonna be replaced. There's always some version of replacement theory. Yeah. And they might say, oh, it's the Jews that will replace us. But there's always this idea that they're, it's this existential thing, like they're on the way out. And I think the thing is Silicon Valley has been giving this message that we matter and you don't. Or if we're going to say you matter, it's in some vague way, like, oh, you'll be able to use our computers or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it doesn't ring yeah. true. 
Like, if they're really going to be all these robots and algorithms, like, what exactly are people supposed to do? And then to make it even worse, the techie solution is usually universal basic income, as, as promoted in the US by Andrew Yang. And then the idea is, well, you won't be worth anything, but the government will send you checks, you know. And the truth is, that doesn't mean people feel very good. Yeah. You know, that's that's becoming the, ba- the, the captive battery in the matrix living in a fantasy, right? It's, it doesn't right. make people feel very good. So the thing is, if you examine how these big companies work, they're building AI models out of people's data. The truth is that the people are are making the value. It's coming from people. You know, it's not just coming from engineers. The, the argument I usually try to make to my engineering colleagues or my Silicon Valley colleagues is a little different. What I remind them of is there's this amazing thing called quality in business. So it's been a fad and it continues this idea of what, what, how do you get quality in business? How do you get quality software? How do you get quality products? How do you get quality management? So this idea of quality as a particular term in business comes from this guy named Deming from early in the 20th century. And what he, he was not a business person initially. He was, he was a, a, a scientist and an engineer and he was just interested in why sometimes factories put out total crap. And what could you do to get factories to make better stuff? And he realized a couple of things, which are extraordinary. One is before him, nobody had really said, hey, gather data from the field and bring it back. So you have real data feedback to make things better. You might think that's the most obvious thing in the world, but somebody had to think of that. But the other thing he did is he said, you know what? The workers in the factory who are actually making this stuff are the ones who ultimately determine its quality. And they should get this feedback. Mm -hmm. And they should have motivation to act on it. They should have pride when they innovate in order to make it better. So he didn't get much audience in the US, but in Japan, after the war, Japan went from having the world's worst reputation for manufacturing quality to the world's best in something like a decade. And they did it by implementing his idea. So he became this huge hero in Japan and then it spread everywhere. Yeah. had a huge geopolitical effect because it's it's created modern China, really. You know, it's created the future. There are things wrong with China and there are things wrong with focusing on quality too much. But the thing is, if we think about that, this idea that humanizing workers, giving them power, giving them an option for pride and influence actually makes things better for everybody. That idea, why isn't that true for people who make data? Mm-hmm. And so if you have a situation where the people who are providing data to AI programs are aware of it and have an opportunity to make better data, to take pride in what they're doing, to take responsibility. It's the only way you can avoid the dominance of malicious crap online. It's the only way you can really improve quality because ultimately the quality is based on the data as much as the algorithm. It's the only way to avoid this feeling of being replaced. And it's the only way to grow the economy as a whole instead of just concentrating it around the engineers and the investors. So on a a bunch of levels, it's the better idea. So that's another angle for talking about data dignity. I wanted to look at something I think is in tension with quality, which is the incentive to give free information. And I've heard you talk about a particular criticism you have about the way we think of the internet as essentially a collection of free and equitably accessible pieces of information, Wikipedia, for example. You've used the term digital Maoism to describe this ideal and practice of free collective information. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your critique of an internet organized around Mm. free information. There's been this thing that's been happening happening for over a decade now. And I have to say, this is somewhat among friends. I know the founders of Google and sold a company to Google when it was young and whatnot. So it's not like I'm talking about some distant other. I've been kind of in the middle of all this. But whenever I talk about this this thing that stealing people's information 
actually hurts everybody. It even mm-hmm. hurts the people who steal it by lowering the quality of everything and like why. And so they'll come back and say, well, but when we do that, then we can offer it for free. And then that's that creates equity because then even poor people can get it and oppressed people. Now, the one thing to say is that if you're claiming that you're helping the poor and the oppressed and you've been, you're, you've been claiming that for a decade, you should be able to show data. Like by that time, you should be able, and the truth is that during the ascent of this business model, there's been Gilded Age wealth concentration all over the world and also political craziness all over the world where not just populist candidates, but truly preposterous and ridiculous populist candidates become the norm, the Dutertes and the Bolsonaros and whatnot, and leaving aside our own country. And, you know, you just can't say it's actually performing as you Mm -hmm. claim it'll perform. It just has failed. You know, like you can keep on claiming it'll do something, but it just isn't. But the other thing is, if you're going to have a market economy at all, and you say those people who don't benefit from it will get free stuff, that's the creation of a slum and an underclass. And, you know, there's just no other interpretation. And once you say that you want to have a slum and an underclass, I mean, you get into this very patronizing way of saying, well, they're being treated well. Well, that's not really good enough. That's not really civilization. It's not really democracy. It's not enlightened. It's not fair, but it's not even good for the people who are on the top of it. It ends up creating a stupid dysfunctional society that's hurting actually everybody in it, even if they don't realize it at the time. And uh, it that division might happen along racial lines. In the U.S., it does. I mean, let's be very clear about that. And so the free, the free model, like I say, the way to finance the free model is that these other people coming in from the side who pour money into the system in, or, in the hopes of influencing those in it. Now, I think that's even a more charitable way to put it than what actually happens, because the truth is a lot of the advertisers throwing money into the systems of Google and Facebook feel kind of blackmailed where they won't reach anybody unless they do it. And it's not even that the algorithms really help them. But the point is that since the whole idea is algorithmic channeling in order to drive attention and in order to engage and persuade. Since that's the very idea, it creates these incredible openings for malicious actors to come in and freeload off the system. So if you create bot armies, the bot armies can stuff data into the algorithms. Uh, For instance, in the uh, Black Lives Matter, in the first wave of Black Lives Matter, which was back some years ago, I mean, not the one from 20, it turns out that there were all these fake accounts funded by by Russian PSYOPs people. And this sounds like some weird paranoid thing, but this actually happened. Pretending to be Black Lives Matter activists, just inflaming them. So the issue that comes up is that the free model encourages manipulation by everybody, not just by the tech companies, but by malicious actors who come along. As soon as you have to pay even a penny, you can't have a million bot army without, a, without some real money and you have traceable accounts for the money. Like everything starts to become a little more substantial, a little less manipulative. A friend of mine at Facebook has told me, I don't know if, I'm not sure this is true, it might be an exaggeration, but that the, the chances of a new account on Facebook in the last year being a real person are only a one in a hundred, that 99 out of a hundred are fake and they try to catch them, but they can't catch them all. So there's this incredible motivation for manipulative agents who aren't even paying Facebook to come in and piggyback on the system And those people are not on the side of the poor. They're not on the side of the oppressed. (laughs) They just aren't. I'm sorry. Because that that requires a kind of a big operation and a bunch of a bunch of planning and budget. And so, you know, I know this notion that the free services help. Or um, another, this is something I call the magic carpet effect. 
in the early days of Black Lives Matter or uh, the Arab Spring was another one, activists who are trying to help people who've been on the underside of society suddenly get this magic carpet ride. But then later on, it gets turned into oppression. And the reason why is that the algorithms are taking whatever they uploaded, all their videos and texts and whatnot, and trying to find where they get the most engagement. And of course, it'll be with the people who hate them the most. And so Black Lives Matter turns into the fuel to revive the KKK and neo-Nazis in America and whatnot. And uh, similarly, the data from the Arab Spring movement helped fuel yeah. ISIS. And, you know, in yeah. other words, um, what in the left is called the reactionaries get even more of a magic carpet ride than the original yeah. people. So anyway, I, I just, I don't think this idea that the free model helps oppressed people really work. The Black Lives Matter movement finally got traction engaging in reality with real life protests out in the real world, not right. online. Right. And the reason why is that the Russians couldn't suddenly poof a million human protesters into a street. Two final questions. The second to last one is mm -hmm. that we are in a particular moment. Uh, and of course, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 happened in that particular moment. Uh, I say in the middle, <laughs> I say we're in the middle, but who knows where we are, we could be at the beginning of a global mm -hmm. pandemic and the bulk of our social interactions have been and will continue throughout the pandemic to take place online. One analogy I've heard to frame this crisis in which the way of our lives has been so suddenly interrupted is that it is like a tree has fallen. And and where that tree falls, it will fall forever for, for at least a very long time. Meaning that we have a chance right now, a radical chance right now, not to stop the tree from falling, but to guide its fall, to decide how and where it falls. And the decisions that we make about how and where that tree falls will be with us for a very long time. What, if anything, does this moment offer us in way of the opportunity to decide about the direction that tech takes in this moment of the tree falling? Yeah, this notion that what we do now will last for a very long time or maybe forever is something that's haunted me for a long time. I wrote a book called You're Not a Gadget that was mostly mm -hmm. about that problem yeah. a long time ago. There are a bunch of places where we can have influence. There are a few where it's really hard at this point. I think the fundamental way we did the internet was inhumane in the sense that it didn't represent humans. It represented only machine addresses. And that simple problem has resulted in a hundred million <laughs> later problems. It was, it was the wrong way to do it. And the original motivation was in part because it was cheaper and easier and in part because there's this idea that the biggest problem in the world is people hiding from an oppressive government and needing anonymity. And the thing is, that does happen and that is important to support, but it is not the biggest problem in the world. You might think it is, but it isn't. The biggest problem in the world is people themselves becoming insane. It's like you have to create a basis for people to be sane before you can worry about whether they're oppressed in their sanity. If the basis doesn't allow them to be sane, and the current system makes it very hard. Like anybody who's only experiencing news online is very unlikely to have anything like a realistic sense of the world right now. And so in that case, it's too late to try to protect them from the government. They're gone, you know, and that, so that was a big mistake. There are many other ones. Anyway, for what we can do right now, one of the obvious issues that a lot of people are interested in uh, in early 2021 when we're recording this is this notion that the, the platforms had no choice but to silence some of the crazy people online, including the mm -hmm. former president, because 
society was falling apart and right. we would have lost our democracy and or probably would have it seemed like you know it seems pretty likely that we would have it was no longer a choice they were compelled to do it but at the same time some people saying well why did it take you years to do this thing that was obvious years earlier but then the other question is is this really what we want we want corporations deciding who gets to talk then you say well if it's not corporations it must be government so we have to talk about rules or structures or processes or something for counseling people online and that whole thing I don't think can be worked out right. I don't think there's any right answer. I think it has to be one small part of a larger solution that has to have that has to have to do with the uh, turning around of incentives. And yeah. in in my opinion, where we went wrong was in destroying societal institutions. Most observers of decent societies, and uh, one that I think is really worth reading on this is Hannah Arendt. And another one actually is de Tocqueville, the, which is maybe the cliche, but societal institutions are where quality comes from in societies. And so uh, what, I, what I would like to see is people always point, posting in the context of some pod that's accepted them where the people in the pod have mutual responsibility and right and have reputations that rise or sink together and also incomes that rise or sink together so that they tend to choose each other wisely and tend to get each other to do well and then bad pods we call these mids sometimes will get reputations as such it, i think having societal institutions is the only way to promote quality in a society without censorship which doesn't work so it's really the only way at all yeah. and this is a whole long thing to explain, but essentially this notion, I'm all about the individual. I believe that individuals are mystical and special, and I believe that individual expression shouldn't be subsumed by a group. And yet the idea of a, of a bunch of individuals working in a large society together just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They're too, it's just too easy for manipulators to screw it up. They have to form their own institutions to stand up to both governments and weirdo charlatans and whatever it is corporations, people have to be able to form societal institutions. That's why we have universities and journals and soccer clubs and rock bands. And I don't know, you just need that. Otherwise you don't get quality. Mm -hmm. If you just had a bunch of individuals spontaneously doing all those things, the quality mm -hmm. would not be as high. It's just yeah. true. And we need that not just for attainment quality, but also just for ethical or moral quality. I have a thousand questions that that just spawned, mm -hmm. but I want to ask one final question mm -hmm. on behalf of a large portion of this audience who are students, both humanists and budding scientists, who represent the next generation of technologists. What would you want them to know, understand, be aware of, think about as they move forward from their career as students into the tech sector? I face this a lot because I love working with students. And what I want to say is that Figuring out how to really do well in the world is a puzzle and it's a puzzle you never solve completely. It's an ongoing puzzle you'll face your whole life and you should engage with it, but you shouldn't expect to just come up with some formula and say, as long as I follow this for my whole life, I'll know I'm doing well because circumstances will change and it's tricky. I think one thing that's not helpful is self-immolation. So like, just don't undo your career for the sake of an ideal that then nobody can appreciate because you never got your career. You have to find a balance. Like, I think if I would steer you away from super nerdy, like if there's some startup saying, hey, we're going to revive dead people with machine learning and then have them run the, their families or something. I don't know, like, I, and I've actually seen that as a proposal. Uh -huh. There's a lot of stuff floating around that's just so creepy and so wrong that you should not do it. But I think you have to find some point of compromise and you'll never find it perfectly. 
you have to keep on struggling. The other thing I'll say is that there's kind of a difference between the short term and the long term. Like in the short term, if you make some decisions to forego some opportunity that might seem like the right one in terms of your own benefit, but it just doesn't feel right to you. You might initially think, oh, I'm, I'm screwing myself over. But actually, in the longer term, like 10 years down the road, you'll probably discover that you differentiated yourself from your colleagues. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you have all kinds of career opportunities. You're no longer just in the pack. And a lot of things opened up for you. And I've seen that a lot, too. Now, now I just gave you contradictory advice. I said, take risks, be willing to give up short-term gain for the speculation that the long-term doing good also helps you do well. And then I also told you, don't destroy yourself. I know it's a contradiction. And the truth is, there's never going to be a perfect answer, or at least there'll be no way to know if your answer is the most perfect one. Um, But I do think it's really worth trying. This coming era we're entering into is going to have all kinds of new technologies that might help us. It's also going to have crazy challenges and a lot of turbulence. I try to urge students to do everything possible to invent themselves on an ongoing basis rather than just take as given, oh, this is the obvious career path. This is the the thing I should go for. This constitutes success. And if I can repeat the cliche, I know a lot of people have made a lot of money and the distribution among them of those who are happy or not is exactly the same as among those who didn't make money. I, I just, be careful. Money is just yet another abstraction that somebody else defined that you can chase. I mean, you need to have enough to live decently, but beyond that, you know, don't don't get become a slave to a stupid kind of attainment that ultimately doesn't even mean anything to you. Thank you, Jeremy.